6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Jude, verses 11 through 13. Verse 4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being yet dead speaketh. Okay, great. wonder what that means. Well, it sounds pretty good. What does it mean? By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice. What was there about Cain's offering? Well, it said faith right? How does faith come? Romans 10, 13, by hearing. You can't have faith without hearing. You can have superstitions, beliefs, conceptions, presuppositions, all kinds of things. You can't have faith. Scripturally, faith cometh by hearing. Abel had heard something that was not recorded. I mean, that hasn't been detailed in this summary narrative that we're reading in Genesis. Abel's offering was in response to a commandment. He was giving an offering by faith. Now, this causes us to lean very heavily on some insights that are not obvious to the casual reader of the book of Genesis. I want you to go back. We're back in Genesis, back in chapter 3, and there's a simple little sentence that by itself is easily missed, but it has a profound implication on your insight as to what God is all about. In Genesis chapter 3, they obviously have sinned. In verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, that's funny. Were their eyes closed up until the sin? It doesn't mean literally, does it? Adam walked with God. Adam was perfect. From the Psalms and some other places in the Scripture, we can draw the biblical inference that they were clothed with light. When the sin came and they're no longer righteous... There was something that happened to their dimensionally whatever that caused them to realize that they had lost that covering. It isn't clothes. But being conscious of that, they did a natural thing. They attempted to clothe themselves. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. This isn't a sex thing. It's far deeper than that, a much bigger issue. But they attempted to clothe them. Very natural. Okay, they got a problem as they're dealing with it. Later in chapter 3, God, of course, pronounces war on Satan. I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and so forth. And we go on here and he talks to the woman and so forth. We get down to verse 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. For Adam also and for his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now, that's a little strange. Adam and Eve had garments that were apparently inadequate. I'm not one to promote the values of fig leaves as a garment. But isn't it a little bizarre that God didn't let them find that out for him themselves? 
that he apparently personally, he didn't instruct them to do it, go do that, it's better. God made coats of skins and clothed them. The fact that God personally did it should get our attention. Even Jesus in most of the Gospels ministered through the disciples. The wedding at Cana, the disciples passed out the water. Feeding of the 5,000, 4,000, the disciples, he deals through his ministers. Every once in a while, he does something personally. That should get our attention. The more we read the scripture, that should, hey, wait, what's going on here? Something very special. If we had just this verse, I'd be really crawling out a limb. But if we take the rest of the Torah, the book of Exodus, and the Passover lamb, if we take the book of Leviticus, and we wrap that all together, we discover that from Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation 19, God consistently presents the principle that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. As we really understand the whole scripture, the whole counsel of God, we recognize what we might even call, maybe a little facetiously, a preoccupation with shed blood. We go through the offerings, you know, and the offering. You, know, you and I are denied the vivid object lessons of Judaism. I mean the old Judaism, not current Judaism. I've often threatened to do this. I have never had the, quite the guts to do this, is to bring in to the Bible study a little duck or a chicken or something. I'll let you all get acquainted with it, a little pet. And then here up in front, chop off its head. You'd be shocked and upset, and that would be the point. Poor analogy, obviously, unless I handle it very carefully. But the point is, what I'm saying is God, before Israel, throughout their whole history, again and again and again, ordained rituals, slaughtering animals, shitting the, the tabernacle's nickname is the house of blood, the temple, by the thousands, special aqueducts and things to haul off the, you know, from all the ritual. What's all that going on? You and I read about it, but it's not the same thing as standing and say, what is all this barbaric ritual all about? God's way of letting us realize that sin is serious, that sin has to be paid for, not by the blood of sheep and goats. That's a model. That's just an object lesson. That's a tutorial. It's all pointing to the cross. Now, where am I headed? I'm suggesting to you that the cross was preached in Genesis 3. You notice why Adam called Eve the mother of all living? Because of these coats of skins. Look at this carefully. For Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. For Adam also, and for his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Strange enough, this passage is presuming that we understand the rest. There are some scholars that believe that the altar wasn't some local thing in those days. The altar was at the gate. They were outside the garden, but they, had, they were instructed to bring offerings. God was instituting what I like to call the Levitical system this early. What's my evidence of that? I guess I've got lots, but the most dramatic one is Genesis chapter 22. Long before Moses and Aaron and the Levites and all of that, God told Abraham to offer his son Isaac on a hill, a very specific hill. You all know the story. Has Abraham takes Isaac up the hill, ready to be obedient and offer his son. Of course, God at the last minute intervenes, substitutes a ram. But Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. And 2,000 years later on that same hill, another father would be offering his son as an offering for sin. Abraham knew that. The belief that saved him was the belief in the resurrection of Isaac. He knew Isaac would have to be resurrected from that experience. 
And that's in Hebrews 3 and Romans 4. And you can, if, if I'm on strange ground, get the tapes on Genesis 22 and take it. It's the most fascinating prophecy study in the Bible, Genesis 22. But again, it's presuming and amplifying a sacrifice long before Moses and all of that. God instituted the concept of the faith offering, the blood sacrifice, in prophetically pointing to Jesus Christ as early as Adam and Eve. When you understand that, now we can look at Cain with much more insight. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. That's Hebrews 9.22, for those of you that want to dig into that more thoroughly. Now I'm going to back up a little bit, and let's take another look at Cain and Abel. Cain was a tiller of the soil. No problem there. They needed food, right? Abel was a tender of sheep. We got a problem there. They didn't eat meat. They don't eat meat till later. At this stage, meat is forbidden. God will later ordain meat to be eaten. Why are you raising sheep? Well, maybe wool. That's fair. Maybe offerings. Abel's offering was by faith, the Hebrews 11.4. Now what's Cain doing then? Cain failed to satisfy God by failing to approach him on the revealed basis of vicarious atonement. God has ordained then and still does that the only basis by which we can approach him is on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, either prophetically in the Old Testament sense or memorially as we do. Cain didn't do that. Cain brought what? The works of his own hands. So what is the way of Cain? He's presuming his, his readers understand all this. What's the way of Cain? To blaspheme God by declaring his salvation incomplete, by our attempting to add to it. There's two ways, faith or works. You've all heard that, right? There's two ways to get to heaven. I love the way Walter Martin presents this. He does a great job. Plan A and plan B. Plan A, by works. What you do is be perfect. As you grow up, you never make a mistake. From the age of accountability on, no matter how irritable, tired, overworked, pressured, you never sin. Never make a mistake. No matter what people do to you, you never sin. And you do that all, not, not most of the time, all through your life. And then when you die, you go to heaven and say, move over. Now there's two of us. <laughs> now that's perhaps a little irreverent humor, but it gets the point across. Plan B is that, hey, we can't do it. I've not only read the Ten Commandments, and I recognize those are not suggestions. <laughs> They're called commandments, Right? And if I fail to get the message in Exodus 20, when I get to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I know I'm in trouble because the Lord reinterprets this as not only the deeds, it's the thoughts of your heart. Let me tell you, if you really knew the thoughts of my heart on some occasions, you wouldn't come to my Bible studies. You'd like, throw stones. No, the real message of the Scripture from Genesis on is that we can't make it by our own efforts. There is a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. What is the basis? His completed work on our behalf. Now, the amazing insight is our attempts to add to that is blasphemy. Does that mean we shouldn't do works? No. Obviously, you should do good works, but not in the attempt to earn anything. Because your attempt to earn position with the Lord by anything you might do is to declare that the position you have by faith in Christ is inadequate. That's blasphemy. That sounds glib, academic, stuff, but it's apparently pretty serious because it got Cain not only perished, but made an example for you and I that we should not perish that way. How? By bringing the works of our hands to the altar of God? 
Something wrong with that? Yes. Not by our judgment, but by God's preferences. He wants offerings by faith, not works. That's what the way of Cain is all about. The blasphemy of God by declaring his salvation incomplete through our attempting to add something to it. You can't add anything to the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Nothing. No matter what you do. What's the ultimate? You give your life? That's not yours anyway. You didn't do that. He did. Start getting this whole business. Not life after death. It's life after birth that's the problem. But that's another issue. But Anyway, that's Cain. Faith versus works. That theme goes throughout the whole scripture, but it starts right here, Cain and Abel. Amply dealt with in Paul's epistles in many ways, but somehow the graphic finality of Cain's situation is perhaps, uh, to me, the thing that uh, brings that home. Cain was not saved. Abel was. They both brought offerings. Both were believers. One saved, one not. One followed God's instructions, one chose his own way. Although it sounds good, it didn't work. Okay, the next thing is the error of Balaam. And, of course, the Greek there says they ran riotously or have been poured forth, rampage. Lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But who is this character called Balaam? Strange, strange character. We find his tale essentially in Numbers 22 on. Numbers 22. We don't know a lot about this guy. He sort of shows up, and he's a character. Now, the basic thrust of the story of Balaam is that he was a prophet. He wasn't a false prophet in the sense of posing as a prophet. He was a prophet. Had a gift. Had a communication channel. And I don't think we'll take the time to try to study Balaam in total. He's an interesting character. He has some interesting prophecies. Just to skip ahead, which has got nothing to do with our story, but to give you a flavor of Balaam, because you're going to talk a lot about the bad stuff. Let me tell you some of the more interesting things. Chapter 24, verse 15. And he took up this parable and said, uh, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, The man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, Who heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, who saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance and had, but having his eyes open. I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come, get this phrase, a star out of Jacob. This is Balaam's star. Some scholars believe this is some link to what we call the Christmas star. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And I don't go into this because this is peripheral, but the point is Balaam had some prophecies. Some of them are important. So he's an interesting character. But Balaam is best known for his major screw-ups. He was greedy for gold, and he ends up getting hired by the enemies of God to curse them. Okay? Now, he is warned not to do this. Since verse 22, we have the children, verse 1, the children of Israel sent forward, they're encamped in the plains of Moab on this side of the Jordan by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all the Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was very much afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel and, and so on. So verse 5, he sends messengers to, unto Balaam. And he says, Behold, the people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide. He's, he's heard all the stories. He's, he's nervous. Verse 6, Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse for me this people, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall prevail, and we may smite them, that, they, that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that, that he whom thou blessed is blessed, and whom thou cursed is cursed. That's kind of interesting. This is what in logic we'd call 
post hoc ergo propter hoc. Because this comes after, therefore it's caused by. It's an error in logic. An example is, you know, if they do, you do statistical studies, say, and you find out that people in college that don't smoke get better grades. Let's assume for the moment that that's a statistically verifiable thing. Well, it doesn't mean that smoking causes bad grades. It just means that two may be caused by a third factor, some personality profile or something. You with me? Because one thing follows another doesn't mean that that is caused by the other. That's a classic error in reasoning. You'll hear because Balaam is blessing something. When he blesses them, they get blessed. Doesn't mean that his announcing it caused it. You know, I often see this in corporate staff meetings. The controller presents the profitable results for the quarter, and you get the impression that the financial people produce it. No, it's the poor guys in the line that produce the profits. The the guys just happen to measure it. There's two kinds of people in the company: those that make the money and those that count it. I often say that always gets to be very popular with the accountants and the financial people. I often point out, you know, accountancy is the only profession where creativity is a punishable offense. They don't like that either. These are, these are chief You can unite any line group by either picking on the accountants or the lawyers. You know, that's easy. But that's, I'm getting off the subject. Anyway, like it's saying here, for whom thou blessed is blessed and whom thou cursed is cursed. And the elders of Moab and the children and uh, elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. And they came unto Balaam. In other words, they brought their trophies and the prizes and the prize money and says, and uh, spoke unto him the words of Balak, and, and uh, he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the prince of Moab abode to Balaam. God came unto Balaam. See, there's communication going on here. And said, uh, What men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, To Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, had sent me, saying, and he goes to the story here. And God said in verse 12 to Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. God tells Balaam, hey, guy, you can't perform that mission. They're willing, they're, they're willing to pay you a fee if you'll give them a bad report, but your report will be wrong. They're going to be, you know, the people are going to be blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and said unto the princes of Balak, get you into your land, for the Lord refused to give me leave to go with you. So Balaam, his first step is to try to be obedient, it seems. Prince Moab rose up and, and they, uh, they went to the king, King Balak, the head of the and said, uh, Balaam refused to come with us. And Balak said, again, princes more and more honorable than they. So he sends more senior guys, and probably, I'm assuming, with more money, they came to Balaam and said unto him, uh, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, and curse for me this people. And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me this house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord, and so forth. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry here also this night, that I may know what the Lord will say to me more. He's going to try again. He's going to not going to give up. He's going to pester the Lord to go. Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. And yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. So now he's, you can go, but you better tell him what I told you. Right? Balaam rose up in the morning, saddled his ass, and went with the princes of Moab. God's anger was kindled because he went. In other words, you get the impression here is that God says, Okay, you can, if you must go, go, but you can't give the message that they want you to give. God's even upset that Balaam didn't get the hint, right? God's anger is kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. This is fun, verse 20. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. In other words, his donkey isn't going to go forward. He's turning off because he sees the angel of the Lord with a sword run. We'll come back to him in a minute. Verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. So there's a 
a place she can't turn away, right? And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself into the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. Understandably. I don't know if you've ever had that horse do that. You know, they always get you near a low branch or something, you know. So Balaam is getting upset. And the angel of the Lord went further, verse 26, and stood in a narrow place where there's no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the ass saw that the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? Balaam said unto the ass, I have no idea what, what Balaam's reaction was to having this donkey speak to him. Because thou hast mocked me, I would there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. And the ass said unto Balaam, Am not I thine ass upon whom thine has ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever accustomed to do so unto thee? And, and he said, Nay. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. The ass saw me and turned me these three times, unless she had turned from me. Surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. He doesn't mess around. Who is he? This angel allows himself to be worshipped. Is there any angel that allows himself to be worshipped? Only one, and he's in a lot of trouble over it. The angel of the Lord is a phrase that most of us ascribe, and I think with some justification, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting cross-reference here would be Joshua chapter 5, before the Battle of Jericho, where Joshua is on sent, presumably on sentry duty, and he sees that he's challenged. He sees the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn, and challenged him like a son, are you for us or our enemies? says, take off your shoes here on hallowed ground. And Joshua realizes who it is, takes off his shoes. Why that phrase? Because it was the same phrase he used out of the burning bush. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. Jesus Christ did. And the last part of Joshua 5 goes into that. But uh, from Daniel and John and other passages, we know that angels never allowed themselves to be worshipped. They obviously except Satan, which got them in a lot of trouble. And obviously when the phrase is used of the angel of the Lord, meaning as an Old Testament presentation of a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Not free of dispute, but a widely held view among biblically fundamental scholars. Anyway, Balaam is allowed to go on, and um, he blesses then Israel rather than curses them, which displeases his hirers. But basically, he is a hireling. He was warned not to go. He was not satisfied with this answer, made further requests, given permission, but not to allow anything but blessings. <laughs> Moses summarizes this for us in Deuteronomy 23. You might Rather than wander through this whole story, let's kick ahead to Deuteronomy. You can do that at your leisure. Deuteronomy 23. Chapter 23 is an interesting chapter. Let's just pick up a few verses of it, show you there's tidbits everywhere. Deuteronomy 23. He who is wounded in the stones or hath privy membered cut off shall not enter the house of the congregation. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even to the tenth generation shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. That verse you might mark and link it to Ruth 4. When the blessing is pronounced in the house of Pharaoh's. He's a bastard son of Tamar. What kind of blessing is that? Well, because the bastard son cannot dare until the 10th generation, 10th generation from Pharaoh's was David. That's a prophecy of David. You won't get that out of Ruth 4 unless you understand verse 2 of Deuteronomy 23. But moving on to verse 3. Talks about Ammonite and Moabite shall not enter the congregation of the Lord, even to the 10th generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever, because they met not with bread and water with this day when ye came forth out of Egypt, and because they hired against thee 
Balaam, the son of Beor, or of Bethor of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Nevertheless, the Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. And then Moses goes on. But that's a little summary of Balaam's error. Okay? That's not where it ends. It gets worse, gang. Balaam, you figure, gee, he's kind of a off balance, but uh, what harm can come of that? Well, he's not through yet. He obviously got deprived of the rewards that King Balak of Moab was going to uh, offer him. So his covetous heart conceives a plan. He couldn't execute the mission that Balak had laid out for him. So he comes up with another idea. You recall they were camped by the borders of Moab. Balaam's done his homework. He knows the laws of Judaism. He knows what Israel's rules are. He assumes that if he can get Israel to sin, God can't bless Israel. He'll have to curse them. It's a very interesting thing because with that spiritual insight, he weaves a plan to get carnal reward. Because he goes to Israel's enemies, King Balak, and suggests that what they do is get their good-looking gals along the border to entice the Israeli guys into cross-marrying, which was forbidden for Israel. They were supposed to stay separate. And so by getting the gals to get them to compromise that commitment, God would have to curse Israel. And if God punishes Israel, Balak's purpose would be served, and Balaam would be rich. And if you go into Numbers 25, you find that it worked. Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Verse 2, they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined herself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He's kindled against Israel because they're being disobedient. They're compromising their commitment of separation that he called them to. How did that get all engineered by Israel's enemies? How did they get that insight? From Balaam's counsel. So that's the error. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jude. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.